Hi and welcome back to the Insights podcast series from Axel. Uh, hope you had a chance to listen to our previous podcast around the, the importance of execution. We had a chat with Srikanth Iyer and uh, later on with Vamsi as well. So hopefully you picked up some good tips from those podcasts today. I'm I'm in Delhi talking to an old friend and uh, founder and CEO of Prop Tiger and 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 its associated properties Dhruv. Dhruv, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Anand. Yeah. Delighted to be here talking to you. Awesome. Thank you. So maybe we'll start out with your background, uh, initially your professional background, and then we'll go into Prop Tiger and its associated properties. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I started my career, Anand, uh, uh, you know, with uh, a company actually in uh, in, in Durgapur, uh, you know, building blast furnaces. So did that for a couple of years. This was after I came back from my uh, uh, master's degree at uh, at Stanford University, you know, uh, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, did that for a couple of years and then did my own uh, startup, uh, you know, in the mining uh, industry mm-hmm. where uh, it was a small iron ore mine I started in Odisha, you know, ran that for a few years and then, you know, went back to, uh, you know, get my MBA, uh, you know, in the US. And post MBA, I joined, uh, you know, GE, General Electric in the specialty materials business uh, in the US um, and did M&A for them um, and then, you know, moved to GE in India as the CEO for GE's infrastructure business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I did that for about a year. And then, uh, you know, post that, I moved to GE Corporate, where I was uh, heading uh, the government business for all the GE businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I left to start my own uh, fintech startup called iTrust Financial Advisors, which I did with a classmate of mine from business school. Ran that for about four and a half years, uh, and then sold that to Carvey. Uh, and post that, uh, you know, uh, we started Prop Tiger. Wow, that's a that's a very unique journey there. Uh, I think you're the first person on the podcast from the iron ore industry, right. and coupled <laughs> with a big company, yeah, G, yeah, and, G yeah. and everything. That's awesome. So from that to moving, uh, fintech got you closer. But maybe talk to us about the early days of how fintech interest became. Uh, yeah, you know, it was very interesting, uh, Anand, because you know, in the fintech business, I trust what we really did was we were doing financial planning for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were doing financial planning, we were literally creating a roadmap, meaning we understood a person's long-term financial goals, short-term goals, medium-term goals, looked at you know what their current assets were, what their liabilities were, what their earnings were today, what their earning capability was going to be going forward. On the back of that, we recommended different products for them, uh, which was very, very specific to their own requirements. And whenever we spoke to people and asked them about their goals, their first goal used to be that, look, we want to put together enough money to put down the down payment on a mortgage mm. to buy a house. So clearly for us, that became a best-selling product, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which was mortgages. And also, uh, once we started distributing mortgages, we also realized that people actually wanted us to advise them on which property to buy. So we started advising them on which property to buy as well, which also became a product for us. And we realized that at that point in time that our, our best-selling combination actually was real estate and and mortgages. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, this is back you know, in 2006 and seven. Uh, it was not as easy to sell insurance. Even equity investments were not as popular with people. You know, we've seen record flows into mutual funds, you know, in the last uh, seven to eight years. But at that point in time, I think the preferred investment for people used to be either, you know, fixed deposits or gold mm-hmm. or at best real estate. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when we, when we sold the business, we said, you know, what do we want to do next? And real estate was, I think, the obvious thing which, you know, we felt, uh, you know, was, had a demand. There was a lot of pull for the product. And we felt we could build a big business around that uh, consumer need. And and how did you go about starting uh, Prop Tiger? So you know this is this is interesting, Anand. Actually, because when we sold the business, yeah, uh, we we retained the right to do the real estate piece, which we were already doing in iTrust, mm-hmm. and build Prop Tiger around that the existing stuff which was left behind. Uh, we renamed it Prop Tiger, 
uh, it was again uh, you know my uh, classmate from business school kartik verma uh, he and i kind of you know uh, got this off the ground mm-hmm. and then we also uh, you know uh, asked uh, another person uh, prashan agarwal Uh, who used to at that point in time work for all check deals mm-hmm. uh, to see if he was interested in partnering with us to take this forward mm-hmm. the three of us you know then got together uh, to kick kick start uh, prop uh, prop tiger prop tiger and what was the original thesis of prop tiger what did you so the original thesis anand was when we looked at the real estate market what we found that there were a lot of classified players present at that point in time uh, and they were essentially uh, uh, you know providing listing services uh, and essentially at the end of the day when a customer came to that platform Uh, and left an inquiry that inquiry was passed on to a broker uh, and then the customer was left uh, you know to the broker and, and it was really between the cu- customer and the broker that the transaction took place uh, the platform had no role to play mm-hmm. uh, and having done i trust we realized that you know buying a home was a big deal for a consumer uh, you know it was probably the biggest purchase decision that ever make in their life mm-hmm. uh, it was probably the most uh, you know uh, uh, a decision which which they would make once in a lifetime at best twice in a lifetime mm-hmm. right uh, so given all of that uh, we felt that the entire process uh, was full of emotion full of apprehension full of mistrust mm-hmm. and people really needed that hand holding to take them through that process mm-hmm. as opposed to you know building a platform where when they dropped an inquiry it mm-hmm. would merely be passed on to a to a broker mm-hmm. so we became the broker in that sense mm-hmm. uh, you know a branded broker mm-hmm. where you know people could repose their faith in mm-hmm. where there was some recourse in case something went wrong understood and this is for new property so we started with new properties you know and you know when we looked at uh, the chinese market at uh, that time we realized that uh, even back in 2000 and uh, you know 11 when we had uh, you know just started the business uh the the market for secondary homes uh, or resale homes in in beijing and shanghai had just after 10 years of unbridled growth mm-hmm. crossed that of new homes mm-hmm. and india it was the story was just beginning mm-hmm. so we felt that for the next decade or so uh the demand for new homes would be far in excess of resale homes it was also backed by the fact that the stock of existing homes were not of very high quality families sort of which were becoming affluent you know people who finding new jobs moving to new cities all wanted a new home as opposed to something which was old mm-hmm. uh, and even today as we you know uh, you know look back you know 7 years ago i think the thesis has played out where the sale of new homes continues to exceed uh, the sale of resale homes resale homes in the country wow. and then uh, so this is you're not owning any inventory here you're going signing up uh, with right so we don't own the inventory there is, there is no sort of balance sheet that we have yeah. so we go and tie up with developers what we do is we work with high quality developers where we've already done diligence on who the developer is how good the property is you know what are the advantages of the location and then we market those we typically tend to stay away from those developers you know where uh, you know things could go wrong mm-hmm. uh, we burnt our fingers in the past honestly when we started the business we were not as careful about our diligence so we had uh, you know our fair share of uh, issues where some of the developers just did not deliver on the properties we had sold on their behalf uh, but you know we learned from our mistakes quickly and for the last several years you know we ourselves you know select the developer through a proper due diligence uh, and market only those properties we are comfortable selling got it so but since this we are focusing on execution let's think back to your early days you onboarded your first few developers and then how did you reach customers maybe talk us through the early phases <coughs> of uh, both both sides right so you know it was uh, see as far as uh, you know onboarding developers were concerned i think uh, you know we started the business in ncr yeah uh, and uh, although we very quickly uh we went to other cities so we probably were one of those startups where within the first 6 months 
had offices across uh, the country in all the top metros mm. but but nevertheless the the sort of startup uh, focus focus was on uh, on ncr uh, and there uh, at that one in time noida market was booming mm-hmm. and you know developers were looking to find any channel they could mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to market uh, you know their properties uh, you know prashan one of our co-founders who had moved from all check deals had been running a similar business there mm-hmm. and so you know we were able to you know leverage that and those connects and start to get the business off the ground quickly mm-hmm. uh, in terms of demand uh, again it was one of those phases where the demand for new homes was extremely high developers were marketing were spending lots and lots of marketing dollars promoting their products uh, and as a result of which you know people were searching for those developments online and by doing smart sem and other sort of uh, campaigns mm-hmm. uh, we were able to get a first uh, bunch of customers got it okay and uh, what is the role of product and tech in these early days versus how much was it <coughs> having people call centers and, and, and you know and my, maybe what's the right balance yes you know like look fundamentally you know my my philosophy on product and tech especially you know when you are trying to find product market fit yeah is to actually first focus on finding that product market fit yeah uh, find you know and focus on refining the business model mm-hmm. uh, i think it's okay to have uh, scrappy processes crappy technology everything in the built in the beginning so at least you can prove that the offering which you have actually resonates with the consumer mm-hmm. i think once you've done that mm-hmm. i think then that's the right time to start you know deploying technology mm-hmm. to see how you can take certain processes which may have been people heavy to make them more automated you know build technology so you can scale uh, build technology so you can improve the service proposition and so on and so forth but i think in the beginning especially you know in in consumer internet i think it makes a lot of sense to first prove that you know the model which you uh, sort of in your head uh, formulated actually resonates with the market or not got it in this case you went and signed up developers you had properties you did scm you got the consumers to it was very basic it wasn't something which was rocket science you know yeah, yeah. It, it i mean you, you can say we had a few developers who put together a website yeah. and we started yeah. right and then how did the transactions happen you had uh, so what transactions yeah. uh, anand so this is this is like a full scale uh, you know hardcore execution business yeah. you know uh, what people talk about these days as online to offline mm-hmm. i think our mantra was online to offline before the term was coined before the term was coined yeah, yeah. Uh, i wish i had called it uh, online to offline yeah, then yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, no but you know it was it was interesting because all the uh, marketing and you know consumer acquisition happened online mm-hmm. uh, and all the fulfillment happened offline mm-hmm. so we actually had sales guys on the ground mm-hmm. uh, you know in multiple cities uh, you know who were actually going and meeting the consumer doing site visits uh, taking them to developer offices helping them with the paperwork helping them get a mortgage and you know finally conclude the transaction so it was a hardcore on the ground operation mm-hmm. for which we set up a full sales network across the country mm-hmm. so even today uh, you know uh, a large part of what we do at uh, prop tiger is still uh, you know managing a, a large distributed sales force okay what percentage of the employee base is that uh, focused on execution uh, so today if we look at uh, you know the size of the three combined businesses that we have uh, you know along the way you know we acquired makan.com which is a marketplace for real estate agents then we have housing.com uh but we have a total of about 1400 people in the company mm-hmm. uh out of which uh, i would say a good uh, uh 50% would be uh, you know focused on hardcore ops execution got it okay yeah and and in the i want to come to makan and housing in a, in a short while but sticking to prop tiger early days so you had these people maybe 50 60% of your workforce figure out what's the right execution model 
And then when did you start focusing on the product and for the efficiencies? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, for the first, I would say one year, mm-hmm. the focus was on, uh, you know, just getting things off the ground, mm-hmm. uh, you know, building out the sales force, you know. So, as I said, within the first year, we actually went to, uh, you know, Bombay and Pune in the west. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to Bangalore and Chennai in the south. Uh, we already were in, you know, uh, Kolkata and, uh, I'm mean, sorry, in uh, Noida and Burga in the north. And we opened up Kolkata in the east. Mm-hmm. So we did all of that within the first year. So the first year was spent in building out sales teams because many developers were pan India also wanted us to have Salesforce in different cities mm-hmm. where they were selling their product. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to have that presence first. And once I think we did that over a period of one year where at least our sales engine has started working, we had built the developer relationships, uh, you know, we were getting a decent amount of inquiries on our platform through SEM that we started to focus on, you know, the product uh, and, you know, customer engagement, getting more and more people onto our platform through SEO and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I would say that real focus started, I think, only in year two. Year two, got it. Yeah. And for the initial phase, your iTrust experience also would have helped, right? The the whole conversion process uh, and everything. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the good part was our, our, our entire, I mean, my entire, uh, both Karthik and I, you know, our, our experience at iTrust really helped us understand the consumer. Yeah. I think uh, understanding consumer motivation is extremely important, yeah. especially in a business like ours where, you know, you're selling, uh, you know, things people won't just try on a whim. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to have that requirement because, you know, you're talking 40, 50 lakhs, yeah. right, at a minimum. So I think that really helped us understand mm-hmm. consumer need, consumer behavior, mm-hmm. uh, and how to sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of present our offering to them, yeah. which would, you know, uh, make them trust us, yeah. right? And, you know, and basically entrust us with a very important decision yeah. which they were going to make. Yeah. Because they had to make that choice in terms of whether working with us or somebody else. And, you know, whether we could inspire that confidence and trust in them or not was, I think, key for us. Got it. Okay. And then once you decided you wanted, you had the product market fit and you want to develop product tech, uh, so what did you do? You went and hired a team at that time or how, how, how should startups heavy in execution early on, when should they get a product and tech lead and, and get so, going on that? So, you know, I think, uh, Anand, that I would say always is a function of, uh, you know, uh, I would say the product that you have and also a function of, you know, the co-founder skills, Yeah. right? Uh, I think in our case, none of the co-founders were, were tech guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the need for us to hire, uh, you know, somebody on the technology side mm-hmm. uh, was uh, was more sort of urgent uh, than it, that might be the case for other co-founders where actually there is a, you know, a technology or a, uh, or a CTO type of person as part of the co-founding team. I think that's a function really of teams. Uh, I think whether it's, whether it's, you know, somebody who you hire or whether it's somebody from within the co-founding team, I think uh, my view on you know technology in the early days is that it's important to just get out in the market very quickly, get consumer feedback before you actually build a Rolls Royce. You know, yeah. otherwise what happens is the temptation is there to build the best technology before you launch, and as a result, you know you go to market late, and you know all the feedback which you could have got much sooner in order to inform your product, uh, that just gets delayed. Got it. Uh, so my my suggestion always is just cobble up whatever you can. So you can take a viable product, you know, and I'm sure this is which most founders would say. In minimum right? viable minimum product. Minimum viable product. Yeah. Do it quickly. Yeah. And then get that feedback and then start focusing. So, you know, for us, we really started looking at a CTO type of uh, role uh, only in the middle of our uh, second year. Second year. Yeah. Uh, before that, you know, just a team of, uh, you know, junior technology folks who kind of cobbled things together. Got it. So maybe switching gears, uh, you you have two other properties under Prop Tiger. How did that happen? 
you know so that uh, so anand it was interesting we ran prop tiger for about uh, you know we, we did the makan acquisition in 2015 mm-hmm. so i think 4 years after we started prop tiger uh, so one of the things we realized in in, in prop tiger was that a uh, organic acquisition of customers was was becoming a challenge uh you know there's a limit to how much you can spend on sem and other sort of paid channels mm-hmm. the idea is to sort of grow organically yeah free users to free your users website. to the to the platform i think for yeah. any startup yeah. i think you know the mantra is how do we get free users yeah. I mean, it's easy to spend you know cash yeah. and get consumers very hard to scale those businesses because most channels sort of plateau out after a while yeah. and they don't scale the only thing which really scales is a free user base in yeah. my opinion right yeah. so that was something which was becoming a challenge for us as, at at prop tiger and and the reason for that was because you know when consumers came to the platform to look for real estate uh, there was somebody who was looking for rental somebody who was looking for you know buying a resale property somebody for a new home uh, and maybe their decision at that point in time was still uncertain mm-hmm. uh, and so they started the search five or six months before and they would go to a platform multiple times you know before they really you know decided what to do so we were missing out on all of that traffic our traffic was only you know when a developer launched a product and the customer searched for that who was ready to buy they were the ones coming to us so we we missed out on all that consumer the entire consumer base which had just started to you know begin the process of home buying so with that we needed an, a, a demand aggregation platform such as makan mm-hmm. which had you know new home listings resale listings rental listings uh, and that's the reason we you know bought that platform this is the top of funnel free traffic so this yeah. is top of funnel free traffic acquisition yeah. was the big sort of goal uh, you know behind uh, behind the makan acquisition and and how did you integrate that how did that flow into your so to so the makan model you know uh, evolved in a very interesting manner uh, we 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 bought it at the time we bought it it was a regular classifieds platform mm-hmm. uh, you know where brokers or developers uh, had to pay to list their properties or advertise their properties we switched it to a marketplace model mm-hmm. where essentially anybody could you know list for free brokers especially developers we still charge you know for for giving them branding and visibility on the platform uh, but for brokers they would they could put listings for free they would get inquiries for free as well it's only when they consummated a transaction did we collect a fixed fee from them post facto what that did was that enabled us to really you know scale the platform mm-hmm. in terms of number of uh, you know listings mm-hmm. uh, which helped us really scale up on traffic then ultimately what happened was that prop tiger became one of the brokers who listed on uh, on makan mm-hmm. and we were able to start generating leads for the platform you know for prop tiger through the makan uh, platform platform, platform yeah got it so if you had to look back uh, redo this would that be the same sequence or if you could uh, if, uh, or would you start a makan type earlier you know i i think uh, this is more in the broader context of Uh, for the founders who are listening in should they look at transaction early on first or traffic or when do you when do you just like how product and tech yeah you know so uh, you know my my view on this anand is that you know my belief again is that you know india is such a market yeah. where uh, it's very difficult to really big, build a big business of scale without actually participating you know in the transaction in some form or fashion you know as people call it o2o or full stack mm-hmm. i think that's the approach i believe you know is a is a is a winning approach for the indian market uh is very difficult for people who start out with a pure online classifieds dna to suddenly start doing ops but it take, takes years <coughs> of learning and a certain kind of background to be able to build large scale ops mm-hmm. uh so i think you know for us i would say that uh, you know because we came from an ops background we we started out with ops yeah we really sort of focused on building that out and then you know on the technology side with all the multiple acquisitions we were able to plug that in yeah and of course you know by then we'd already built our tech team as well uh, so there's no right answer again but i would say 
you know, for our industry, real estate, which is more bricks and mortar, you know, where you have to touch and feel yeah. the product. I think starting out with the uh, ops approach was the right one. Yeah. And I would sort of redo it yeah, in exactly the same, same way. way. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think the same we heard from Srikanth as well uh, when he talked about his industry is close to yours and we spoke to Wamsi who's in education. Right. But we are hearing repeatedly that get the ops right, get the product market fit, even without perfect technology, technology right, absolutely. and then, then go for it. The only nuanced thing is can you get more free top of funnel traffic, Correct. right? So uh, using Wakan, but there's a right time for optimizing. Right time, for exactly. And that is something which I think, you know, also has to be part of your thought process from the beginning, Anand, right? Yeah. That always kept us up at night. That, you know, how do we scale on free traffic? It wasn't that, you know, we woke up one fine day saying, oh, by the way, what went wrong? You know, mm-hmm. we always knew that the business wouldn't scale yeah. profitably unless we figured out a free channel to, to generate traffic. Got it. Okay. And, and the other thing which is unique to you is you have financial investors and strategic investors uh, who work with you. Maybe talk about your investors, particularly on the strategic side. How, how, how does that? So, you know, I think it's, this is a, you know, it's, it's a very interesting debate, Anand, which, uh, you know, everybody, uh, you know, has. Uh, and, you know, people, uh, you know, have different, you know, points of view. Uh, I think we were extremely lucky to get a strategic investor at the time we did. Uh, and just to kind of give you a sense, uh, this was, you know, uh, at the end of 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, at which point in time, frankly, capital was available from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would recall 2015, yeah. all sorts of businesses were raising capital. Uh, and it was a big debate in my mind whether I should do it or not, mm-hmm. because, you know, we could have really, you know, tried and gotten, you know, a larger, you know, financial investor. Uh, but our belief was that, you know, real estate is a business. And we were, you know, still sort of in the throes of a down cycle mm-hmm. in the core real estate business in any case, right? Uh, and many of our competitors, including us, were struggling at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my belief was that if we, you know, get a strategic on board, they would have a longer term perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, because strategics don't have any pressure on them, uh, you know, to exit after a certain point in time. Or, you know, have certain views on, you know, X, you know, uh, times return on their, uh, you know, investment yeah. and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and, and and frankly, you know, uh, with the strategic, uh, uh, there are also learnings to be had, yeah. you know, from different markets in which they are present in terms of, you know, how to apply them, you know, in your own, in your own markets. So I think that that was something, you know, uh, that's a call we took. And we found that when in 2016 mm-hmm. uh, and 17, when capital disappeared, you know, our strategics were there to support us at that point in time, yeah. I think which was extremely beneficial for, uh, you know, for us. Uh, having said that, uh, there are obviously, you know, disadvantages uh, of, of, of having a strategic on board as well. Uh, typically, strategics are large companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes what happens is that, you know, uh, one has to follow more processes. Uh, you know, there is a system in which, you know, strategics operate, uh, which I think with financial, that is easier. Yeah. You know, things can move a lot quicker. Yeah. So things do take, you know, more time with strategics. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a trade-off. It's a balance. So early stage, maybe uh, starting out with financial, getting to some scale. Yes. And then, then identifying good strategic who can, who can have long-term view. Correct. And bring them on board. And bring them on board. And then, you know, what happens is the strategic could be a natural exit yeah. for the founders, for the financial investors as well. Yeah. The flip, of course, is that, you know, uh, you, you tend to get locked down yeah. with, you know, one potential buyer as opposed to having multiple. Correct. So I think it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the founders should always uh, debate intensely uh, before they take a decision uh, mm-hmm. to go with a strategic or not. Yeah. As I said, you know, they both, uh, you know, have their pros and cons. And we just got lucky, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, when we chose the strategic and the kind of strategic we chose. And, you know, we benefited greatly from uh, from their, their being there. Awesome. And then you also had to make some hard calls along the way. Right. right? When it comes to co-founders, friends and all that. Right. And you've navigated that very nicely. So any lessons from that? 
for first time founders they might be starting with three four good buddies and all that right. Right? Sure. so you know the, the, so you know one of the things uh, anand which uh, which i which i believe in fundamentally is that whether it's you know your initial team mm-hmm. or whether it's the initial bunch of co-founders uh, everyone has a role to play at a different stage of the company there are certain people who can play a role at multiple stages of the company right whether it's startup whether it's when it's growing whether it's when when it's listed right mm-hmm. i mean the what's you know required of a public market ceo versus a startup ceo very different right yeah. so maybe you could be a great startup ceo but one might not even want to be a public market uh, company ceo yeah. right so i think what happens is we have to be very cognizant and uh, realistic about the fact that your initial team members initial founders may or may not necessarily be relevant for a certain stage of the organization mm-hmm. right uh, goals might differ desires might differ as well even for them right so i think at that point in time it's best that if there is a co-founder who wants to leave or you know the company if there is a particular co-founder who may not be best suited for the company going forward i think if one has a mature adult conversation and you know discuss it openly uh, i think it can be worked out i think what's not appropriate is to take things personally mm-hmm. i think if it becomes a personal issue then things get very complicated mm-hmm. if one can uh, you know deal with it in a professional manner uh, and not make it personal i think it's easy to handle i think the most important thing is to be fair mm-hmm. you know if a co-founder is leaving it's best to be fair you know to the co-founder you know at the time they leave whether it's in terms of you know buying their equity or giving them you know a reasonable exit you know managing the optics whatever it is yeah. uh, i think if, if the co-founder does not feel belittled at the time of leaving yeah. i think you know it's a win-win situation because at the end of the day uh, you know this is a small world uh, you know we all in a startup community mm-hmm. you're going to come across each other at some point in time yeah. so i would say don't burn bridges uh, i don't make it personal uh, and it's 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 much easier to handle than you know what one would imagine it is yeah and and do would you advise founders to have this discussion even upfront saying that Uh, not all of us might scale right so we should do what's right for the company and let's find the right roles for each of us as we scale or or just let it play out you know i think it's best to let it play out because at that time anand is very very hard to uh, you know imagine whether one would scale or not you know because i think everybody feels that they can scale because you know all of us you know get highly motivated and you know inspired by you know by amazon and you know facebook and google and uh, you know apple where the founders are sort of you know been there and continue to be there right and uh, and that's something which every every founder believes that you know they can do it as well yeah. so i don't think that you know one should uh, you know go in with the assumption that you know whether one can scale or not no prenup here yeah exactly <laughs> no, no requirements and as i said you know if you're an adult uh, yeah. and you know deal with it in a mature fashion yeah uh, i think investors can play a very helpful hand there as well yeah uh, in you know sort of facilitating such you know complex and difficult discussions yeah uh, and i think you know there's a resolution to be found yeah. anything any other advice for first time founders before we no you know uh, uh, you know for me the way i see it is and i always give this advice to all all founders you know it's been a long journey for me i started i trust in 2006 you know 2018 so it's 12 years i've been you know always in startup mode mentally and it's good to be in that because you're always hungry always agile always sort of day paranoid one. you always have this day day one feeling yeah. that look you know you got to do more right uh, but you know the thing uh, it takes its toll right over 12 years uh and i think i think the most important thing to maintain your sanity is is how to learn to manage your emotional volatility you know i i kind of use this phrase all the time is because you know one fine day you wake up and you know you feel uh, that you know things are just going down the tube right mm-hmm. uh nothing is going right you know you're not going to raise capital you're close to your you know money finishing in the bank 
you know, one of your key employees has left, you know, so there are many things which happen. Mm-hmm. And you're like, look, this is crazy. I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. One fine day you wake up and, you know, everything's going right, you mm-hmm. know, and you're really, you really feel, feel elated, right? Mm-hmm. So this yo-yoing of your emotional state, you know, takes its toll, right? How do you, how do you balance that is, is key. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people that, look, if things are going really well, you know, respect what's happening around you. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the environment, maybe it's the team you built, maybe it's something else which is beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when things are going bad, it's for the same reasons. Yeah. So, if, so if you don't give yourself too much credit for uh, what's going well, yeah. and the same by the same token, don't give yourself too much of blame yeah. when things aren't going too bad or yeah. when things are going very bad, then I think, you know, you can maintain your sanity. Yeah. It's only when you take things very personally is when, you know, things become difficult. So just learn to do that. Something like if by Rudyard Kipling, right? (laughs) Maintain your head when all the... Yes, exactly. That's awesome. That's great advice. Just to summarize, uh, so we heard from Dhruv, who's been through multiple industries, uh, from iron ore to mining to... Uh, to fintech to now real estate and and he's been an entrepreneur for more than 12 years. We heard about how he went about in the early days in this online to offline world to focus on getting the execution right, really nailing what the customer wants, then figuring out how to scale the product tech and and uh, and scaling the team along with that. We also heard about how he acquired one other company. They've acquired multiple companies, but how to use that wisely to build the top of the funnel, how to integrate that into their whole flow. And uh, we also talked a little bit about some of the tougher decisions to make. As a founder, you might have to talk to one of your co-founders down the road if they don't scale or some team member, but let's do it in a way that's, that's uh, mutually respectful and, and graceful so that everyone comes out of it stronger, right? As hard as it may sound, it can be done, right? Uh, very important advice is to maintain your emotional volatility. Don't, don't take it upon yourself. It's not because of you that the company alone, you alone that the company is going to uh, be big or, or go down. So build really good support infrastructure around yourself. All great advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Anand. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.